One of my favorite things is when you have a study of scripture and somewhere along the way, for no reason or other, God is bringing it to life. A few weeks ago, we started a Bible study in our high school group, and we're going through the book of Ephesians, six weeks, six chapters, so one chapter a week. And we began with Ephesians 1, and we read through, and they had the high schoolers just tell me which one stood out. For no reason at all, nothing. Just what stood out to you as we read them. And last Sabbath, Ephesians 1, a a part of scripture was read in the middle of our service through our, our music, and our youth turned their heads to me, and they said, we just read that. And it was really cool because I was telling them, you need to know scripture and read scripture to be able to live the life that God has called you to. Because we can talk about these beautiful principles and we can talk about the good things and the positions toward goodness that we can inherently feel. But until we open up the the word of God, we won't be able to live the life that God has intended for us. And if we want to live in the land of milk and honey and the rich of the blessings, then this is where we come. And so I sat here last week and had youth eyes turn to me and they go, We know where that's from. And I was like, well, God is going to keep doing what only God can do. And the one thing that I told my high schoolers as we read through Ephesians 1, and then it was the same verse that was read, I'll read it for you now. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. My point for our Bible studies, and as we are going through Ephesians, and I'm I'm learning is my point in any time I come to Scripture, and any time I try to encounter Jesus, is that God's will has only ever been one thing. God's will has been for us to be adopted by him, for us to claim ourselves as his children. From the beginning in Genesis when it began to the end in Revelation when he restores, this entire book of scripture is built on God's will. And we come here oftentimes when we're stuck, when we're scared, when we're not quite sure, when the pressures are building and when there is lots of chaos, searching for the will of God, And I hoped a week ago that I could start to deflate some of the pressure because it's not a secret. God does not have a mysterious will that in death we will find one day and then go, oh. Yes, there is more that he has planned for us than we can ever imagine. Yes, he is bigger than we can ever comprehend. There is mystery about him, but there is no mystery about his purpose. He has only ever wanted to be in relationship with you and I. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've listened to Pastor Milton bring depth through the gospel of John, a different kind of gospel language than we're used to in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, we get prose that is poetic. In John, we get our 
our heartstrings tugged in a different way than is simply narrative. In John, the word becomes flesh, and the word has always been, and the word will always be, and everything starts and stops with the word. And that is this. But this soul function is to point us to a person. And so when we say that everything starts and stops with a word, we also say everything starts and stops with a person. And so John provides us with a special kind of spice, a special kind of depth, a special, you know, whatever your, whatever your flavor. And if it's of the Bible, then it's salt. But John provides us something different. And so we'll, we'll follow Jesus today in John. So I invite you to our app. And there's a Bible. I'll invite you to the Bible in your pew. I'll invite you to the Bible that you may or may not have brought with you. But we will spend some time in John chapter 14, following Jesus. John, the gospel where the I am statements are found because we love to recognize and be involved with wordplay. John 14, we'll just start at the beginning. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know that the way to the place where I am going, and you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. For now, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In my name, you ask, you ask me for anything. I will do it. This is the Jesus that we encounter that John is pointing us to right now as he has a conversation with his disciples. Jesus' ministry has already been in progress, and now he's starting to prepare, him for the, prepare them for this idea that he might be going to prepare something different. And in their heads, they're saying, where? We want to go with. What kind of ministry are you going to start now? We are ready. What do we do? And Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And in the meantime, you've got some work. And you have the Father on your side. And they're like, what? How are we? Where are we? What are we doing? And Jesus tells them, you will be able to do greater works than you have seen, than you have participated in, because of what I am about to do. So when I was in college, I dreamed of what my life would be like. I even created Pinterest boards, the electronic bulletin board, that would categorize each part of my life as I dreamed forward. And I was prayerful about it. I had to think of what was aesthetically pleasing as well as functional and realistic. But it's been about 10 years and I still have these Pinterest boards. Now they're geared toward youth ministry, toward VBS, toward a handful of the things that we do here. But it was only within the last month that I jumped down the rabbit hole that is the internet and I started looking at my old posts and my old pins and what I wanted my future house to look like, what I wanted my future hymn to look like, not the song, what I wanted my future job to look like. And I had very clear ideas of what my future should be. I was prayerful about it and here a board I've hidden them all since so that I can remember, but that nobody can judge me for them anymore. But if you do follow me, you will see VBS is coming up and things are, are getting ready. So we'll, we'll use your, uh, your inspiration in the next few months. But as I sit here and I think about what my life was going to be as I'm going through these Pinterest boards, I remember feeling very dissatisfied when I moved to Michigan for seminary and for the first time being out of my parents' house, the Pinterest board of what my home would look like or how functional it would be did not match my reality. One, finances. Two, my parents were involved. So in their effort to make me comfortable as a California girl in the Midwest who has never been comfortable in degrees under 80 since I grew up in Riverside. <laughs> Believe me, San Diego was a hard adjustment. Just kidding. They decided that they would buy me a new bed. They decided they would buy me a couch. They decided that they would help me furnish the new home that I was going to live in. And so I, while I was very grateful, when I moved back home from seminary, my truck was a little lighter because I had sold the couch that my parents bought me. And when the truck was unloaded, they go, so where's the couch? I was like, oh, I sold it. Why? Well, I want to buy a new one. What was wrong with the one that you had there? Nothing. So then why did you sell it? Well, I told you, I just, I want to buy a new one. It's like, for what reason, though? This makes no sense. And in my head, I'm like, go look at my Pinterest board. It wasn't the same couch. And there are values that I know my parents had having grown up from very little and from a lot of stories from our parents and our grandparents having grown up in times and in cultures of very little where 
when you were able to furnish a home and create a space and open this space up and to do things with this blessing that meant something and there was investment there and there was going to be returns there if you used it for the glory of God. And I had just gone and sold one of my pieces that could do that for me apparently. I recognized as I moved back to California that my parents and my values were very different when it came to home furnishings. I wanted the very modern, very geometric, very sleek. My parents were like, is it functional? Get it. Is it going to be big enough? Is it going to be small enough? Will it fit? Get it. And I was like, no, 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 that's not the one. I've grown up in a culture, and me as a young, young 30-year-old, I am the epitome of a demographic of people where you get a new phone every year or two, where we are no longer concerned too much about quality as we are about quantity or how quickly we can keep up with the trends. So what Pinterest has done for me was give me access to Swedish furniture that was more than Ikea and give me an ability to see what was chic where before people would say, oh, well, I traveled abroad and I was able to experience and therefore here's where some of that inspiration comes from. Well, now I got Pinspiration all day long. And my access and my world gets bigger and smaller at the same time. What I noticed was that my parents wanted me to invest in a kitchen table that would be with me for the next few places that I would live. The kitchen table that they have in their house precedes my existence, precedes my brother's existence, who's eight years older than me, and there's value there, but there's memory there. It's sentimental as well as functional. But that's not how I am. And if you followed some of our journeys through tidying up, you'll know that there are things generationally that have said we have invested here and it's so hard for us to let it go. And not because of material things, but because of many of the things that it has brought us and it represents. This has been a coming up for me, and so this is a representation. But as I look at the furnishings that I wanted when I was in college and the furnishings that I bought now that I actually like, they are vastly different. And I would hope so, because I would hope in the last 10 years I would have matured and done some growing and done some thinking about what would actually work in a life. But it tells me that what is not always packaged as well, or things that might not seem trendy at the time but might be functional and withstanding, are easily pushed to the side nowadays. Which is why churches are getting a bad rap and why church attendance is shrinking and why the church, which is long-standing but not necessarily trendy in this moment, is kind of having some teeter-tottering happening. I'm the product of a culture 
that will not have a pot be passed down from generation to generation, a blanket passed down from generation to generation. I'm not predisposed to this idea of a lifetime warranty of a Tupperware that my mom is still trying to sell me on. She has them in her pantry. It cracked a few years ago, and they sent her a new one. She had those Tupperwares before I existed. And so this idea of a lifetime warranty is just, no, I don't get warranties because I'm going to get a new one when it breaks anyway. And I'm not going to buy a quality thing because I'm just going to get a new one anyway so that I can keep up. And then I think, hmm, yep, this is, this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need Jesus. Because the things that I'm starting to get caught up in have no meaning, no value, and no place for me to be spending my time mulling over these things. So Jesus promises his hol- the Holy Spirit to his disciples when they say, what are these great things? How are we going to do this? Where are we going to go with you? And he's like, no, no, no. I am going, and you will do great things in the meantime. Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, with whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And so I know that there are places in my life where I need to put down the things that I am placing priorities on. And I know there are places in my life where they need to turn straight, left, right, centered on Jesus. Because it is in those moments where when we're searching the will of God, when we don't know which career to choose, which relationship to have, when we don't know what school to go to or what major to have, and we search the will of God, what I will say is that if you put Jesus at the center, he will bless. Jesus does not care which one of those things you do. Probably all of the options are good so long as your heart is in line with his. Because he has equipped you and he has given you a spirit to do great things that no matter where you go, as long as that is your orientation, God's glory will abound. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth with whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. This is the story. This is God's will, only ever wanting to be in relationship with us so that when Jesus leaves, we still have God with us. Jesus wants to tell his disciples that he is not abandoning them. He is not disrupting their group. But that he is expecting them to continue his work and do even greater things than he accomplished in his ministry. Jesus never left the boundaries of Palestine. 
And so he has called us to push that. The power of the Spirit allows there to be more converts after Peter's sermon at Pentecost than there were recorded during Jesus' ministry altogether. It is through his disciples that his ministry is multiplied. He expected that the church would become the instrument by which he could manifest his salvation to people. That is our role. That is our call. That is our invitation and hopefully part of your experience. And what it means to be salvation to people is to come back to the greatest commandment that there is in the Bible, and that's to love God, which will orient you to love people well, to one another well, to love one another, to be kind to one another, to share with one another, forgive one another. The ministry of the Spirit is for us, is for his disciples, to direct decisions, to offer counsel, and to remain with us forever. And that is the major difference between the Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit and the New Testament experience of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. The Spirit dwells in every specific Christian believer, and that is our privilege. Jesus, if you continue in chapter 14, will reiterate love multiple times. Love is the basis for relationship with God. Love was manifested in Jesus when he came to earth. Love is manifested in us as we continue to be obedient toward him. Loving Jesus pays dividends that nothing can match. Over the last few months, I know there have been many stories for all of us, even in the last week or two. We have all been part of this roller coaster called life, and the difference for many of us have been how central Jesus has been in those spaces. There have been times over the last few months where I have been stretched, where I have cried, where I have been joyful, but hurting. And I know it is the Holy Spirit that has given me this peace to allow me to know a God who has always said, in your weakness, here's my strength. Through the chaos, here is comfort and peace. Through whatever you are going through, as we had a story last week, here's my yoke. Not for you to carry, but so that I can give you what I can handle. And that's everything. This is the kind of God that sent us Jesus. And this is the kind of Jesus who says, do better than me. Go out and change this world. Do better than me. Love so dramatically that all of humanity receives salvation. I'm going to invite the worship team back forward. There is a movie that I enjoyed back in the early 2000s. I think it might have been 2000 specifically. 
And it is called Avatar, and they're um, these large blue beings that people have done scientific research on so that they can somehow sci-fi plug in and then be transported to where the avatar is, hence an avatar, true definition of avatar. And what they learned in terms of this research in the movie is that this whole civilization of avatars has a very specific order to their, their lifestyle. And when two avatars connect, they, it's not an I love you, the language that we use now, or it's not a, a typical thing that we might have heard of before, but what they say as equivalent to the most intimate thing they can tell each other is, I see you. I see you. Because some of us are sitting here, and while we are in the room full of tons of people, we can be feeling very lonely. And so one thing is we serve a God who is very personal and sees each and every one of us. And if we continue to pursue this God and put Christ at the center of our lives, then we will be the people who see him. Because the world cannot receive because they don't know him. But we know him. So we can see him. And so it is this idea of him seeing us. And while I mentioned earlier, there is a mystery about God that we will never be able to comprehend. But I want that because I want him to be bigger than anything I could ever imagine. I need him to be bigger than everything I can conceive of in my brain. And I know that all of us go down those rabbit holes of the things that we come up with in the worst case scenarios. And I'm going to need God to be able to be bigger than all of that. But that's why he keeps his mystery, so we can allow that to be true. So when we see him, we can multiply the ministry that even he did while he was on this earth. So that when we see him, when we look at the faces of everybody else that we're looking at, we can continue to see. So I love you is a great, a great word. A great message to tell somebody. My first sermon here, I, I made everyone uncomfortable by looking, having y'all look at each other in the eyes for, for a couple minutes without saying anything and trying not to have a reaction. And there were tears here for some people. And there were some parents who's like, we've never done that in the 15 years we've been married. Because to see someone and to look past whatever exterior and to try and get to someone's heart that way is so powerful. And so God wants to know that he sees us that way and offers us the invitation for us to look at him. This is an accessible God. This is a God who wants to be in relationship with us. And in that, we have the opportunity to multiply the work that Jesus did in his ministry. So if you're like me and you're restarting your New Year's resolutions again February 1, Here's one that I'm going to add to your list. See God in the faces of the people that you surround yourself with or the ones that you don't surround yourself with. 
But God is calling you to multiply the ministry of the work of Jesus right now. And so maybe you don't have to wait till February 1. Maybe it's like Sabbath is like a February 1. And you have an opportunity to figure out what God is doing in you through you because he sees you and because you see him. This is my prayer for you. This is my encouragement for you. He has given you the spirit that can do anything and more than you can ever imagine. So pray faithfully. Put Christ at the center of everything that you're doing. And in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hurt, somebody will see you if you allow yourself to be seen. And we will see each other, and we will see the world, and we will make differences that only God can do. So for his power and for his glory. Amen.